Moncrief on News Talk. Time to uh, look at some stories from other parts of the world. Jonathan DeBurka Butler joins us once again. Good afternoon, Jonathan. How are you doing, Sean? Uh, right, uh, we're going to go to uh, Spain first. So this, I suppose, this story kind of mostly involves uh, Morocco or Western Sahara. Yeah, Western Sahara, really, I suppose. And the leader of the independence movement, the Polisario Front, his name is Brahim Ghali, 71-year-old um, leader of that particular group. So just to put it in context, Morocco claims Western Sahara and uh, has done since the mid-1970s. I think when the Spanish left in the late 60s, Western Sahara was left behind and Algeria, Mauritania, I think, and Morocco sort of fought over it and Morocco won out. Now, it's not recognized by the United Nations as as being owned by Morocco. It has a sort of a special, special, special status, but very important countries do recognize it. And most recently, actually, I think indeed Israel recognized Morocco's claim um, over that part of the world. So this particular individual, anyway, Brahim Ghali, he's based in Algeria. He's kind of given protection by Algeria. He actually has a diplomatic passport that he travels under. And he was sent to Spain because he was suffering from COVID and he needed to get treatment, right? So mm-hmm. he's in Logroño, okay, which is in uh, the Rioja region in the north of the country. And um, well, it's a nice place for him to be yes. um, uh, if he has recovered from the COVID, which I, I believe he has. Um, and the Moroccan government were not very happy about the fact that Spain had kind of secretly moved him from Algeria for this treatment, okay? Um, and so you might remember a couple of weeks ago that the Moroccans opened up the border between Spain and Morocco and left quite a number of migrants through. through. Now, you might say to yourself, well, how did they do that? Sure, there's the Mediterranean between them. But there's these little exclaves uh, on the land of, of uh, Africa, mm. which belong to Spain. And, of course, they're right snug up against Morocco. So Morocco said, well, look, if you're going to do this, we're going to let a load of migrants into Spain. So it seems that between the the jigs and the reels somewhere in spanish authority they decided to uh, put forward a preliminary hearing against this guy brahim gali who is accused by various different human rights groups and individuals within western sahara of genocide murder terrorism torture disappearances and all sorts of human rights abuses but last week the uh, the Spain's high court basically turned down the request for him to be taken into custody, basically saying that the plaintiffs in this war crimes case against him didn't provide enough evidence that he committed any crime. Um, so as it stands, no crime will be brought against him, although he is still in Spain. So there could be other hearings that will be brought, other evidence that is found, and eventually some sort of a case might be brought against him. But it seems unlikely. Uh, at the moment. Mm. A very complex situation. Uh, is it unlikely because there just simply is a lack of evidence or are there other pressures being involved here? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. There is, there's diplomatic uh, situation has grown out of this. Now, it, it, it annoyed, I was about to use other language, but it annoyed the Moroccans so much that they've withdrawn their ambassador from uh, Madrid. Mm. And they basically said, if you send this guy back to Algeria. It, it, it was vague, the language, right? But they basically said, if you if you send him back to Algeria in the same secret manner that you got him into Spain, 
we'll be very unhappy and we won't we won't bring back our ambassador right so i i suppose it's an invitation to the spanish government to sort of say to them look just tell us that you're sending him back so we can give out to you and then we'll start diplomatic relations again does if that makes sense yes uh, they, they they were they were really annoyed about the fact that it had been done in such a clandestine manner and and through the back door as they saw it if they do return him to Morocco, will he be arrested there? He won't be returned to Morocco because he has, um, as I said, he has an Algerian passport. Right, yes. So the Algerians effectively give these guys um, cover, if you know what I mean. Mm. And he's not the only one who's been accused of human rights abuses, it should be said, right? There's others among his retinue who, who have also um, been accused of the same. But he, as I said, he 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 travels under this Algerian diplomatic passport. So, so I, I don't think he's I don't think he's touchable really, unless yeah. they get him in Spain. He's not going to be got anywhere else. I don't think. Right, uh, Egypt. We're going to go to next, and uh, this is a tragic story. Now, six uh, girls died in a fire. Where were they? Yeah, that's the that's the the crux of it, really, Sean. Um, they were in a juvenile detention centre in Cairo. Um, so this happened last Thursday, late on Thursday. A fire broke out um, in a building which is in the Al Marg district uh, of Cairo, so northeast of the city. It's a it's a very densely populated city, and uh, many of the buildings are dilapidated and 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 really are not very well looked after. Um, so for that reason we do hear quite a number of stories from uh, this city about fires and the victims of those fires. Now, in this case, it happened, as I said, in a juvenile detention centre for girls. And there was about 200 girls in the centre at the time, aged between 14 and 17. And six of them, unfortunately, have died. 19 others were injured. Um, We don't know at this point how it broke out, how it happened. Um, The only thing we do know is that the head of the facility has been detained. He was detained straight away. And uh, obviously he, along with other witnesses, are, are being, being, being held for questioning to see how the whole thing started. Um, I suppose the one upside of it is that it was contained fairly quickly. Um, so it didn't spread to other wings of the building more. A lot more people could have died. Um, but as I said, this is something that happens quite a bit. Uh, there was just within the last couple of months, I think in December 2020, there was actually a fire. I don't know if we covered it. I certainly remember seeing the story, but there was a fire in a hospital which killed seven um, mm. in, in a similar part of, of, of town, not far away from here. And then in March of last year, 20 people died in a fire at a textile factory just outside of Cairo. So, um, you know, health and safety, maintenance, building standards wouldn't be the best in that part of the world, I suppose. So they're prone to this kind of thing. Yeah, it does seem to be a bit of an issue. Uh, right, Pakistan, uh, we're going to go to next. And I suppose it's a kind of a good news, bad news situation. This couple have uh, blasphemy charges uh, dropped, but they've already mm. been in, in detention for seven years. Yeah, seven years. A Christian couple by the name of Shafkat uh, and his wife, Shughafta Masi. Um, it's a really strange story, but one we've heard... On a number of occasions uh, at this stage, Sean, um, do you remember the story that we we covered? Because there was such it was such an epic story. It was Aja Bibi? Do you remember her? And she eventually was acquitted, but she had to leave the country, and she's now living in Canada. Mm. Well, she was she was kind of in tandem with these two, with this Christian couple. And in fact, the couple's attorney is the one who represented her as well. 
So what happened in this case was that the couple who claimed to be illiterate uh, were accused of sending text messages to colleagues of theirs insulting the Prophet Muhammad. Right. Okay? Now, there's, <laughs> there's two things about this, right? First one is that they claim to be illiterate. The second one is that they claimed that their identity documents were stolen and they were then used to buy cell phone numbers under the couple's names and then somebody else, it would appear, clearly went ahead and mm. sent the text messages to the colleagues. Now, it stems from a, a kind of a work dispute that had been happening uh, beforehand, but I suppose it's indicative of cases like this that we've seen before where personal vendettas play out in this fashion, where, where, where basically a minority might be picked on. And this just isn't in, you know, in Pakistan, you know, where this would happen, and with, with Muslims, you know, pointing at Christians, it would happen with Hindus doing the same thing to Muslims in India and various different other parts of the world. So it's not, you know, it's not an exclusive thing. Um, but certainly in Pakistan, it has been, it has happened before where personal, where it's been used to sort of, um, uh, as, as a personal vendetta. Um, but the news of the acquittal comes shortly after the European Parliament um, issued a statement in April saying that they were alarmed at the rise in blasphemy cases in Pakistan. And in that particular statement, they commented specifically on the charges against this couple. And they said that the, the evidence was deeply flawed and they, they urged authorities um, to lift the life sentences, or sorry, not the life sentences, but the death sentences uh, that were imposed on these on this particular couple back in 2014. But they're they're now going to walk free. Um, their lawyer says that this is probably going to happen at some stage next week, but whether they'll be able to go to their hometown or not, uh, I would say that is highly unlikely. My word. Did it emerge where, you know, there was, a, uh, there was evidence supporting their version of events or was it just the, 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 um, um, the original... Uh, the original case against him was just a bit dodgy. Yeah, I think it's the latter rather than the former. I mean, there was there's one there's one element of it I think is is might be important in that um, back when their case happened, so 2014, all you needed to do to go in to get a mobile phone was show your documents, right? Mm. And but now you need a, some sort of an electronic thumbprint, I think, of some sort. So there's there's sort of a physical evidence that you need to use in parallel with those documents. Um, so uh, either way, the court has decided whether it's because of international pressure or not, I don't know. But either way, the, the, the court has decided that these charges should be dropped. And it's good news, Sean, because I mean, that means that there's two fairly high, prof high profile cases that have been dropped around very um, dodgy accusations in the first place, because mm -hmm. I mean, there's still around 80 to 100 people who are, who are locked away and still on death row or, or have been sentenced to life sentences for so-called blasphemy. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I think it's a, probably a, a positive story. Yeah, from the certainly for them. Yes. Uh, right. Uh, China, we're going to go to next, where they've uh, um, suspended at least all ultramarathons. And, and is, it, is it any long distance race they've suspended? I think it's it's extreme running, so sort of trail running, desert trekking, or or any of that kind of thing. And and this really is a bizarre story. I actually, when I saw it first, I I said I I actually thought about withdrawing it because I kind of didn't believe it. But then I saw various different sources reporting it, and it's just really bizarre. Like the headline is that twenty one people have died, right? 
because out of 172 runners, so there's 172 competitors in this ultra marathon, which was a 100 kilometer marathon. Uh, it happened in the Gansu region of China. And Gansu, it's important to explain where it is. It, it's it's, nor, it's northern China, but it's south of Mongolia, right? So people might know the sort of the extreme weather conditions that happened in Mongolia. And it's the, the same is true of Gansu. It's really remote, very mountainous area, and, and things can change very quickly. Now, when these 172 runners set out at 9 o'clock in the morning to run the 100 kilometers, they knew that there was a possibility of some bad weather, but they didn't think it was going to be as bad as it turned out to be. Um, you had situations where one runner basically spoke about about before she reached the, the mountainous part of the trail, she basically decided that it was too dangerous. So she herself turned around and she was right to do so because it was about three hours into the race that really bad weather began, like hailstorms, temperatures began to drop, was, visibility was very bad, and um, people fell. Uh, they got lost or they, uh, they died because of the cold. Um, when eventually people f- uh, found and rescued some of the people, they found people in caves, uh, sheltering from the storm, this kind of thing. And you know these weren't people who were running for charity right you know people who who you sort of say to yourself oh well why did they kind of do it in the first place they weren't they weren't fit these are people who uh have won ultra marathons one victim had won an ultra marathon he was a champion before another one had had been in the paralympics as well um so these were fit people and they were ready for the race uh, they shouldn't have had any problems if there was you know if uh, under normal circumstances but the conditions were so bad um, that the re- this was the result. Uh, really horrendous story. Did uh, um, who organised the race, and are they? Pra- and you know, were there support services available for people in for specifically these kind of circumstances? Now, the the the, the name of the organisation that ran the race uh, that organised it, I can't remember, right? But it was most certainly an official organisation, right? So they're the same people who were able to issue numbers um, basically saying that there was 25 ultra marathons in 2019. So it was official, right? But an awful lot of the criticism that has been leveled at the organizers uh, centers on that lack of preparation, lack of contingency plans. Now, for a place that's as organized as China, that's quite uh, a damning indictment. And when you consider like it's amazing how they were able to how they were able to deploy people when the, when the race was called off and when they realized they were in trouble like they had 1200 rescuers on this okay mm. when they realized that people were going missing um so they were able to mobilize fairly quickly so it must have been very badly organized for people to uh, criticize it in, in such a manner but uh you know, it was just one of those freak events, I think, and um, and and uh, the the weather just turned in a manner which um, uh, people weren't expecting. Yeah, uh, right. Qatar. We're going to go to uh, next another story uh, that's sports related, uh, and and people will probably guess why. But this is uh, uh, about uh, a chap who was uh, he, well. He he's as I understand it, he's still facing the charges of uh, alleged disinformation. Yeah, 28-year-old Malcolm Bidali is a Kenyan who moved to Qatar in 2016. Now, in his case, he moved there to work for a security company. And um, he, when he got there, 
he, he, he kind of became, I wouldn't say a celeb, well, I suppose he was a celebrity for some people, but he was a pain in the backside for the authorities mm-hmm. in Qatar because he was known for blogging and drawing attention to the state of workers in Qatar. And, and since the, that particular country has got, um, was awarded in sort of controversial circumstances, the World Cup for 2022, there's been a lot of focus on the... Um, the standards in, in work, okay, they're, they're abysmal. And I have to say, actually, the lads on Off the Ball have covered this quite extensively and they do a great job on it. And um, so, you know, there's been an awful lot of international pressure put on them. And they have, it should be said, they've changed various different things. So, like, there's a new minimum wage law put in. It used to be the case that it was very difficult to get out of your uh, original employer's contract, right? Because they have a sponsorship deal that basically ties you to them for years. That's been dropped, at least on the surface. It's been dropped. Whether that is the case in practice, I don't know. But this guy was obviously still critical of various different work practices in Qatar. And just a couple of days before his arrest, he made an online presentation to civil society groups on, on uh, online, as I said already. So I don't think it's any coincidence that he was arrested just a couple of days after that. Now, they've charged him with spreading. So it was May the 5th that he was arrested, so it's a while ago now. But he was arrested for spreading disinformation. And they basically said that the offences around this disinformation also involved the receipt of payments from a foreign agent for creating and distributing that disinformation within the state. Now, specifically what foreign agent that is, I do not know to tell you the truth. Mm. Um, As you said, he has been released, but the charges critically have not been dropped. Again, an awful lot of international attention was brought to this various different organization. I think Amnesty got involved, the International Labour Organization have got involved. um, And so that probably hasn't helped the cause of Qatar, who who would prefer to keep this quiet and probably just uh, send your man packing, to be honest with you. Yeah, and, and are they specific about what they what he was saying that they object to? So they're not really, to be honest with you. Like, um, you know, I, I I think he was just a general critic of how things were done in the country. Right, he's been mm. there from two thousand and sixteen, uh, and he was outspoken about the you know levels of accommodation rates of pay free time uh, the ability to to move from job to job that kind of thing and um but it, but it, the, the other side of that though is that he seems to have had a decent enough relationship with his employer i mean he's stuck with them um ever since and they've they've sort of made statements not necessarily on his behalf but they've haven't um they haven't been shy about the fact that he works for them. Do you know what I mean? Mm, so, yes. Um, I, I think it's just the general criticism that they're not particularly happy with uh, and, and they would prefer to get rid of him. But I, we'd ha- you'd have to wait to see uh, further into the story as it develops, to be honest. Yeah, but you could see why uh, the Qatari authorities would be super touchy about all of this. Right, Lithuania we're going to go to next. Uh, this is a story uh, about people who uh, uh, wouldn't be big supporters of gay rights then, by the sounds of it. Yeah, so it's it's uh, Pride Month, as you know, and um, in Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, um, they've decided, like, like a lot of places do, to mark it by uh, using the rainbow colours. And in this particular case, uh, the authorities there, they had a street crossing, you know, a pedestrian crossing, 
uh, with the rainbow colours. Very nice it looked too, and uh, and it was lovely. And uh, four people who, as you said, wouldn't be the biggest fans of gay rights, decided to use black spray paint over it. Now, I don't know whether they recorded themselves or they got somebody to do it, but either way, they were caught on camera, all right, and for about a minute, as people tried to use the walkway anyway and drive around them and various different things. And they look pretty stupid, but that's fine. And um, they've been caught anyway, and the police in Lithuania have now said that they've initiated proceedings uh, for a minor violation of public order. The Vilnius City Council have basically said in a statement that they are going to bill the people who painted it black if, if, if they're caught uh, and, and it's proven against them. But it's interesting the timing of it because it comes just a few days after a bill that would have allowed civil unions for same-sex couples actually failed to pass its initial vote in the Lithuanian parliament, right? So it needed 65 votes, but it only got 63. Um, so they'll have to have a go at that again and uh, and uh, see if it, if it passes. Um, but anyway, as you can see, um, mm. still a few people who wouldn't who wouldn't be too happy if it passes either way. Well, there are many countries in Europe that that you know are moving distinctly against LGBT rights anyway. Mm. Yeah. Uh, um, so uh, that's possibly not that surprising, uh, unfortunately. And it's, it seems to be predominantly in uh, Eastern and Central Europe where this is happening. Uh, right, France. We're going to go to fine uh, finally and. Uh, <laughs> I don't know there's too much smoking in french films can there be too much smoking in french films yeah, well indeed uh, that's according to the french league against cancer uh against cancer um they they basically say that smoking gets 2.6 minutes of screen time on average per film so that's that's equivalent to six adverts apparently and they say that from 100 out of 150 films that were made between 2015 and 2019 90 of them uh, contained what they call a smoking event, uh, character smoking, presence of ashtrays or cigarettes, or a character talking about smoking. And uh, they basically say that it influences young people and they're calling on the French government to regulate the amount of smoking that is shown on screen. And uh, they want them to cut public subsidies for movies that show smoking, as they say, on purpose. Um, now, as you can imagine, there's been a bit of pushback on that. Uh, Matthew Kasovitz, um, who uh, he was the man who directed Le Hen, mm. uh, that black and white movie from the from the 90s, which is an absolute masterpiece, I should say. Um, but he's basically and he was also the guy who's, who was the main male role in Amelie as well. Right. OK. That. Yeah, that guy. So anyway, he basically has come out and basically said movies are not there to be role models. They're there to show what society is. Um, and so there's a lot of movie producers who aren't particularly happy about it. And uh, ah, you can kind of understand why, I suppose, in some respects. Uh, well, and because our imp- and maybe it's my cliched notion, but that, you know, one gets the impression that in France, maybe the whole anti-smoking thing hasn't really, uh, you know, uh, uh, got that much uh, um, that much traction there, really. I don't know. Um, certainly the number of smoking has declined as far as i know but do you know mm. what i don't actually know if you're allowed smoke in bars or what the story is i haven't been to paris for a while and i don't know if you're allowed smoke in bars or what the story is anymore good point i don't um, think you are I, I don't think you are right okay yeah. well, that, well that's probably where they are certainly the the, the number of smoking has gone down 
Um, but whether that'll happen in films or not, I don't uh, I don't know. But that's what these guys are trying to uh, trying to get anyway. Yeah, I, I suppose it's in, <laughs> doing in the sense it was a period in in I don't know if they even do it anymore in Hollywood movies, at least you'd know who the bad guy was because yeah. he was the one smoking. But now yeah, they don't yeah, even absolutely. do that. But I suppose in French cinema, people are just smoking and sitting around being miserable and having existential crises. Uh, <laughs> so what should we look forward to over the next week, Jonathan? Yeah, a few things coming up. Um, the presidential elections in the aforementioned country of Mongolia. Uh, that's happening on Wednesday. Um, there'll be very interesting regional elections in France. I think there's a few mayoral elections which are, which are usually a decent indicator of um, trends and that kind of thing. I can't remember, is it next year when there's presidential elections? And, and the French presidential elections are always fascinating. Uh, to be honest with you. So this might be an indicator of, of, of how people are thinking. Oh, well, uh, uh, Sky News right now are playing on a loop pictures of uh, Macron was doing a line, shaking people's hands and somebody just uh, slapped him upside the head. So uh, oh, that, might, okay. that might give you an indication of that too. <laughs> well, certainly in that constituency anyway. Might work in his favour, you never know. But on Thursday then, Joe Biden is meeting Boris Johnson. So that'll be, uh, be interesting as well to see. I wonder, will Joe talk to him about... Uh, Northern Ireland and the protocol and all that kind of thing that remains to be seen Jonathan thanks a million as ever Jonathan de Burke Butler there you are listening to the Moncrief show on Newstalk we're going to take a break after that should you be let sleep whenever you want Moncrief on Newstalk